Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Peter Lehrman and this is Masters in Small Business M&A. This show is an ongoing exploration into the vast and undercovered world of small business M&A, where we interview both the proven and the emerging owners, operators, investors, and advisors whose strategies and methods for transaction success have been put to the test. The show aims to surface the nuanced intricacies, the key ingredients, and the important factors that can improve your decision-making in your own journey in the world of small business M&A. This podcast is produced by Axial, an online platform that makes it easier for business owners and their M&A advisors to find, research, and privately connect with a diverse mix of professional buyers of small businesses. In addition to learning more about Axial, you can find this podcast show notes, edited transcripts, and many other related resources, all for free at Axial.com. Peter Lehrman is the CEO of Axial. All opinions expressed by Peter and podcast guests do not reflect the views or opinions of Axial. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests may have ongoing client relationships with Axial. Hey, folks, welcome back to Masters in Small Business m and I'm your host, Peter Lehrman. I am really excited to dive into a great story today with Nathan from Columbia River. Nathan, thank you for making time to, to jump on with me today. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So I want to just dive right into a really interesting point in your career. You had already spent, I guess, 14 years between private equity and investment banking. You spent 11 years at TZP Group in New York. As I was saying before we pushed record, the, the longer you stay in committed capital, institutional, private equity, the harder it is to leave for all kinds of reasons. But nonetheless, 11 years in, you decided to set out on your own, start your own independent investment operation. So I want to start there and just sort of have you take us through how that decision came about, what were the thoughts going through your mind, how are you thinking about it? There are lots of people that are probably thinking about that fork in the road, and so hearing about the way you navigate it would be a really interesting place to start. Yeah, well, first, Peter, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great question. Well, let's just dive right in. So yeah, I was coming up on year 11, year 12 at TCP, working my way up. To be fully transparent, I was working in New York from 07 to 11, TCP, and then I was working, I was commuting from Seattle to New York from 11 to 18. And we moved out to Seattle back in 2011. And as I got more senior, pre-COVID, they're like, look, we need you, if you're really going to make this work, we really need you to be back in New York full time. So the middle of 18, I decided to, to leave TCP. It was very amicable. I took some time off. I did dabble in other things. I, I did venture into cannabis for six months. I don't talk about that too much. <laughs> My wife my wife, my wife got tired of me com, coming back smelling like cannabis, right? After I visited all these growers and I was doing financing and it was it was the craze back in, eight, in 18, early 19. And ultimately, I partnered with a friend of mine from business school who I never thought I would ever be a partner with, but we were friends for 15 years and I was working on a deal. I called him for some capital. He was you know, looking to make a change in his career. He was a software developer by trade, built two software companies when I exited. And we're like, you know what? Let's get together and try to do deals together. Part of why we went down the path of being you know, the independent sponsor is you know, we had never worked together. There was not a lot of finance opportunities for senior people in Seattle. And I really didn't want to move, given my wife and family we got established here. We're not from Seattle, but we're going to love Seattle. So lack of opportunities, wanted to do my own thing at some point. And I did have opportunities to work for other funds back in New York, but decided to go try my own venture with my partner back at the end of 19. When you say you're commuting from New York to Seattle, Seattle to New York, I mean, that's not a one hour commute in the car. What was that commute? I mean, how much travel was happening? 
it varied over the years. Sometimes it could have been like every week, depending on if we're live in a deal or I had a portfolio company to go deal with, or we had a lot of meetings with LPs. And sometimes it would be like once a month, but you know, a lot. It was, it was a lot. It was plenty, more than enough. And so ultimately decided, you know, that didn't want to continue that lifestyle. So I am traveling quite a bit now since we have three portfolio companies in New York anyway. So, but I am, but, it, but it's more controllable now. But yeah, it was a fair amount of compute of travel. Just taking, separating the considerations related to geography and, and whether or not your home in Seattle is home to a lot of the kinds of private equity opportunities that would maybe have been like a bit of a comp for TZP. What are the other, if you separate those items, like what in your mind are the considerations when you're a decade into a career in, in private equity, middle market, or you know even bigger cap? What are the considerations that, leaving aside geography and the importance of that, and what are the considerations that you go through in your mind or that you, you thought about as you were making the decision separate from geography bet- between the two paths? When you're at a fund for over 10 years or 15 years, which a lot of guys are, unless that fund truly scales, right, they go from 100 million, 500 million to a billion, right, and have incredible returns to create, you know, transformative wealth, which is what a lot of guys in product are doing, right? You're, it's hard. Like if a fund goes from 300 to 400 and you join as an associate, you're only getting a small piece of the carry. You're getting good, good current income, don't get me wrong. You don't have to deal with the broken deal expenses and all that stuff. So there's a, there's a fair amount of security, but the upside is typically capped because rightfully show it should go to the founders of the fund that took that risk in the first couple of years. And I'll be honest, I didn't appreciate that risk until doing it on my own. So when we when I evaluated my op, I, my options was, hey, I could go look join another fund, right, where I'm you know, maybe senior, call it a cog in the wheel, and I've got a, an investment thesis and a mandate, and I've got all the resources. But again, I was at a middle market fund. I'm not going to go upstream to go to a KKR Blackstone, have another middle market fund. Or, and at the time, our latest fund was about 500 million. And, you know, there were seven or eight partners at the time, and I wasn't one of the founding members. I was a, I was a junior person working my way up. You know, my, my view was like, I could probably have more impact, create more wealth for my family by going on my own. And I don't have to do as many deals, work, work on fewer deals, because we can keep the economics concentrated amongst myself and my partner and the few folks that we bring into the team. And that's how we, and, and that's how we thought about it. Is that how it's played out so far for you? I mean, like, you know, any surprises or do you feel like, oh, yeah, I mean, obviously lots of things along the way. You've learned a lot along the way. We're going to dive into a bunch of those things and, and, and some of the challenges. But is that general framework? Does that seem to hold your multiple years in now? So it's funny. I, I have had a number of friends who have done what I'm doing and done incredibly well. Being an independent sponsor, they've, there's luck involved. People are afraid to admit it, but there's definitely luck and timing involved. Our biggest challenge is we started right before COVID, right? We started at the end of twenty, at the, be- at the end of twenty nineteen, beginning of twenty twenty. Did our first deal right before COVID, and that and that deal went, you know, took a turn for the worse right after COVID. But we got through it, and the company's performing well now. But it took a fair amount of work. But three years into this thing, it's been great. You know, what I tell people, I've, I've had a lot of conversations recently with folks looking to do deal by deal, leave invest, leave an investment bank, leave an established fund. I tell them, the couple of things that advice I tell them is like, don't do it yourself. Like, find another partner, right? Who, who is at least like-minded, maybe not the same skill set, but the like-mindedness, and give yourself at least eighteen months to two years of runway, right? Because you know you're going to need that runway to find deals, establish your network. People who thought would be you know super supportive when you were at the larger fund, they're probably not as helpful when you when you're doing your deal by deal because it's a different scale of businesses 
different types of providers. So no, I'm, I'm very happy where we are now. You know, today we've got six companies. We've got eight, nine, eight, nine people at the firm. We're, we're, we're building our business. But you know, if you'd asked me 18 months ago, I would have been like, oh crap, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> I mean, I may have to go, go get a job because at that point we had one company and it, it had been a grind. Yeah. Do you think about the evolution of Columbia River in the context of going beyond deal by deal and raising committed capital? Or do you really like the structure and is the structure continuing to grow on you? The, like the, you know, the sort of deal by deal structure? It's a great question. And we, we just had an offsite to discuss this deal by deal versus fund model. And, and we're still debating it. We're still debating that. You know, I have, I've had a couple of investors with us who have, you know, this one guy's, technically he's an independent sponsor. I'm not going to disclose the name, but he did his first deal 10 years ago, just three minute EBITDA, and he just kept building that business. And that business is now over a billion of EBITDA. Wow. Right? And whenever I talk to him, he's like, just build that one business, go build it, really get to know your business. And it's interesting. His comment to me is diversity or diversification is just a fallacy. It's, it's a fallacy. It's you want to be diversified because you don't know anything really, really well. Now, to be fair, he got there's a little bit of luck in his investment, great tailwinds in his sector, a lot of opportunities to roll up. But his point is he took a $3 million EBITDA business platform and took it to a billion. And, and I've seen that in a couple of other sectors, such as you know, there's, there's home services. And I've seen a couple of places where people have really doubled down in a subsector and they've become the go-to acquirer or buyer. Whereas my old firm is a generalist, the generalist firm, right? They do growth equity software, business services, direct to consumer. So we've had that debate. So we sort of are focusing on a couple of subsectors and we're actually having this debate internally is do we just double down and build on the three or four or the four or five platforms we have today? Let's build these companies versus trying to do the next deal and try to diversify ourselves out. Which and that's a debate that Ron's we're having and we haven't solved that answer yet. What's the process by which you solve that answer? It's a great question. We did an offsite a month and a half ago. We went to went to Mount Hood, took the team out to Mount Hood, and we said, like, you know, we did two things. These three questions. What do we like to do? Do we like building companies or do we like doing deals? And the answer was split amongst the team. There are a couple of guys like myself that are probably more of a deal junkie. But my partner is more of an operator, wants to build companies. Right. So we have that dynamic, which is a good dynamic to have. The second is do we have any companies here that we think that could be meaningfully a lot bigger, right? If we, if we double down and put all our time into that portfolio company through M&A, people, organic growth, and we do have a, we have a, we have a couple of those. And three, do we think we have, do we have some of our tailwinds behind some of these, in these industries that we're in, which I think we do because we're sort of in the, we call it, we're, we're in the picks and shovels of technology, right? So our view is everybody wants software and growth equity. Great, go chase it, let them go chase it. You still need somebody to sell you the software, install the software, educate you how to run the software. You need hardware to run the software. So we focus on that ecosystem. And you know, we have one investment that helps schools understand their IT needs. And that continues to be a problem. So we're excited about that business. And we think that could be a, a much bigger business as we continue to invest in that. So we haven't, we're still evaluating it. You know, I still get deals every day, right? And, that is, and success creates more opportunities. So I get more deal flow now than I had you know, two years ago. But, you know, we're trying to be thoughtful. We're like, you know what? We should really double down on the portfolio. Let's build these companies. And some of the guys that I have, I have the utmost respect for, you know, they've really done that. They've taken an HVAC repair business. So they've taken some service, you know, business service business. And they said they just doubled down. And they spent three, five, seven years building that thing from two, three EBITDA to, to 30 to 50 to 100. And that's sort of what we're potentially leading towards. 
When you guys think about doubling down on the businesses that you have, do you think about doubling down on them from an operator's perspective? Or are you, do you, when you think about doubling down, does that mean everything that an operator would do, but also buying businesses and adding on to those businesses? Yeah, it's, it's both. So it's, it's definitely making sure we've got people in there that can really help scale the businesses. So we're big on, on people development, right? We run something called the CRP Leadership Series, where twice a year we bring executives from larger companies like an Amazon or Hewlett Packard or AT&T, usually C-level execs to come talk to our portfolio. But how do you make decisions? How do you market? And the goal is here is, you know, let's let's think bigger. Let's try to grow. So we want to empower our people, focus on their superpowers. And second is, to your, point, to your second point is, yeah, M&A, right? Can we either augment through investments or M&A to drive that growth for these companies? I'm not sure we figured it all out yet, but that's what we're that's what we're doing. Well, everyone's making it up as they go, so you know, hundred percent. And when we first started, our first deal was a carve out of a company in bankruptcy. That was our first deal. We got it done. It was nerve wracking as hell. I would not recommend it to anybody, but it's doing well. But our, after we close, we're like, okay, we're not bankruptcy guys. And what we learned is these are the most difficult deals, unless you have a lot of capital for covering expenses. So we pivoted, right? And so we and we pivoted. pivoted Three, at least three times since we started. But now I think we've got a comfortable thesis of where we're spending our time. I'd love to dive into the thesis a little bit more deeply, but maybe before we do that, for those that are really interested in just, you know, the traditional private equity path and then, you know, taking a left turn into the entrepreneurial sort of starting moments of building your own investment organization with uh, an independent sponsor model, could you maybe break down like what are the couple of things that you need to ultimately be capable of doing in order to get out of the blocks as an independent sponsor? I mean, what are the capabilities that an independent sponsor needs day one in order to get out of the blocks? Like what, what do you have to be able to actually do in order to get out of the blocks? There's a couple of things. One is you have to be able to take that risk of having income for 12, 18 months. What are the time periods, right? And, that, you know, and that's going to be situational based on how much money you've already created, Maybe your spouse or partner is making money. That's number one. Number two is not being afraid to hear a lot of no's. When we were raising our first deal, it was about a $10 million check size. You know, a lot of people that we thought would, would, would write a check as part of the equity said no. I mean, we probably had 75% no's, right? We ended up funding the deal and I think we'll have a very success, successful outcome. Hearing a lot of no's and look, that was hard. You know, calling a lot of investors, even guys that you've worked with for 10 years, like they're, either they don't have the wealth yet or they're not comfortable or you know they want to see you you know get the first one up first and then they'll come to the second one like so like, we heard a lot of no's and and don't take it personally what i tell people like it's just they may not be in the right place the right time to write you a check and that's okay and three is um don't be afraid to ask for help like I, you know i tell people if you're going to do this like learn from people's mistakes like i'm happy to share our investment you know, we have a standardized you know, you know teaser investment memo I'll share with anybody, right? Use those templates to, to share, talk to investors. So those are the couple of things to think about. As you think about finding deals and capital in the deal front, you have to be a lot more savvy finding deals. You can't call the usual, the usual investment bankers you were calling at a middle market fund, right? When I was at my TCP, we're calling Stiefel, Lazar, Harris Williams, Piper. Those guys are great bankers, but they don't really have the time or the patience. And I don't blame them to deal with an independent sponsor, right? You need to find other sources of deal flow, whether it's guys through Axial, through your own relationships, through executives, where they're willing to give you a chance. 
right? Or leverage your relationships, which is how we found some of our deals through our relationships. And then on the capital side, there's actually a great community of capital now to support independent sponsors that give fair fair economics. And so what I tell people is if you're going to take capital from somebody, make sure they've done a deal with independent sponsors. Make sure they actively market themselves on their website that they do independent sponsor deals. And do they show up to the major independent sponsor conferences, right, such as the McGuire Woods or the iGlobal, right? And there's a good ecosystem now. So the, the, probably the hardest part is taking that first step of the risk. And the second part is in finding a deal that you think you can get that you, that you can execute. The capital partners that you source for for transactions as an independent sponsor, what do they tend to look like? I mean, are they, if you went to their websites, would their websites say, we're in the business of investing in independent sponsors? There's a number of them that will say that, that will say, hey, we we invest in independent sponsors or it's a strategy of theirs. Like, you know, here's our investment criteria, particularly for like the SBIC funds, some of the equity only funds. The family offices are a little more discreet, but you know which ones are investing in independent sponsors from their family offices side because they're coming to those independent sponsor conferences. Which is, there's not three or four of them every year, right? And they're looking to find ways to invest capital and reduce their J curve, right? They want to reduce their upfront expense, right? Not pay two percent fee every time when they're coming to a fund. So that ecosystem is growing, and we're seeing a lot more family offices that want to invest in independent sponsors as well, and they're showing up to these conferences as well. So it's not hard. And then just do reference checks. You're, don't be afraid to ask a capital source, hey, have you done a deal with independent sponsors? Can you give me three names? And almost everyone that we've worked with will give you three names. And, and if they're positive, we use them. If, we have, if they can't even give us, give, us, give us one name, then the red flag kind of goes up. What is the point of view that you have on like committed capital GPs as a potential source of capital for an independent sponsor? Like, do you ever, how should an independent sponsor think about? Yeah, yeah it's, great, it's a great question. And we'll, so let's put the SBIC funds, which is a, you know, SBIC funds or GPs, committed funds, there's a lot of them that focus on independent sponsors and they have it clearly on their website. Like we focus on independent sponsors, what's embedded in equity. We have looked at investing or doing a deal with call it a traditional private equity firm that does call it direct deals. And we've had a situation where we brought an investment thesis, we brought initial platform, we brought a CEO that we found, we brought a potential advisor. And it was during the pandemic and there was some noise, but you know we were about to close March 31st, 2020, right? But then we put the deal on hold March 15th, we revisited the deal four to five months later. By that point, our non-circumvent had expired. And then somebody on the committee at the private equity firm said, you know, we don't really need the independent sponsor. Let's just do the deal themselves. And they did. They took our CEO, took our thesis, and they closed. At that point, there's not much we could do as a independent sponsor. It can't go sue them. The non-circumvent expired. But lesson learned, like, we're not going to go do a deal with a private equity firm unless it's very clear that it's stated that they will work with independent sponsors, right? They either can come to conferences on the, and if they don't, we just, we don't spend the time. And we tell people like, look, you have an idea with independent sponsors. You know, our biggest fear now is we had another opportunity with another group that wanted to do one of our deals, but wasn't very clear if they do independent sponsor deals or not. They gave us the best economic terms. Ultimately, we turned those terms down to go with the groups that we've worked with in the past. Wasn't as good terms, but we knew we would never be in a position where you you could get potentially get cut out of the deal, right? So something to be we're, so we've been burned twice through this process. So we're very careful now of who we choose to work with, and I feel very fortunate now that we've got a pretty good group of capital bases that want to work with us. And you know, my my goal is to tell 
anybody going in the independence bonds from land is be careful if a, if a deal is too good to be true on the capital side. Just just be careful, right? And do the reference checks and, and make sure you've done your homework. What are the terms that matter to you, Nathan? So clearly economics, you don't want to work for free, right? And we're happy to pay, we're happy to do incentives. So if we do a poor job in the investment, we don't make very much money. We're happy with that. But if we do a great job, we want to make more. And McGuire Woods does an annual survey of what are the market terms for economics for independent sponsors. So they do a great job. And we, we use that document pretty consistently. It does like, here are the market terms. We're not asking for anything above market, below market, but we do want to be you know, rewarded for our efforts. So economics, number one. Number two, governance, right? Really understanding how involved, you know, if we're going to have a $40 million equity investment, we have a bunch of $5 million check sizes, right? We want to be careful that we're not taking on a bunch of groups that are all going to be hands-on because then there's too many cooks in the kitchen, too many cooks in the kitchen, and we can't, we can't be, you know, be effective. But if we're taking a check from one group, they should have full right to be kind of driving the transaction, right? So it's whoever's part of most of the capital should drive the transaction. But if it's multiple groups, well, we want to be careful. So, and we've done both, right? We've done situations where we've multiple groups and we've had to be very transparent with reporting, both the pro and the con. But so understanding governance and what is what, what they expect and what we expect. And look, most capital guys, to be honest, they all want to be hands-on. They all want to be operationally focused. What I've learned, even from my days at TCP and other middle market buyout shops, what an ideal world is you want to be involved as much as you need to be, but you're hoping you buy companies where you've got good teams that can grow on their own, right? And we're really being strategic about the board level. If we're getting too hands-on, that means something's not working. You don't have the right people. So, so number two is governance. And then number three is just reference checks. Just making sure they've done deals you know, with other independent sponsors. So those would be the three. Is it your point of view that the sort of happy medium is to not have one check writer just because then there's too much concentration of there's too much buyer power, you know, to sort of like use a, you know, Michael Porter term? And that It depends on the group. So if the group, again, I go back to if the group's done a, a dozen independent sponsor deals and they've done the entire check and they've got the reference are positive, I have no issue. And then they'll obviously have more control. They'll, be, they'll have control of the board. And we've done both. So it really, I go back to like, are these, I mean, are these, is, the, is the capital base truly looking at the independent sponsor as their real source of deal flow? And they want to do multiple deals a year. And have they made their own investment of going to conferences, adding people, or is it just a one-off? Because a BD person says, hey, I found a deal that Nate found and we can kind of get a deal done with them. It really goes back to, are they making an investment in the channel, right? Or is it just a one-off? And that'll determine whether we care if it's one check or a small check. And, and we've looked at deals where we've had potentially one check writer, no issue. But the GPs, the investors are like, look, I, we want to do independent sponsor deals. We don't want to be involved at all day to day. Nate, you go deal with it. Great. We have, you know, we're happy to do that. So, or, or they want to be heavily involved, but, they, but they're not going to cut us out and they want to rely on us for our expertise. Both situations are fine. We just need to understand what the dynamics are. Let's switch gears a little bit to the to like the deal side and the deal sourcing and deal execution side. Like I'm curious what your thoughts are as a function of your experience both at TZP and and now with Columbia River. Like what are the approaches that you take to try and win to win the deals that you want to win and and how how do you come at that differently or the same as an independent sponsor, you know, and the founder of of Columbia River versus when you're at TZP? Just what how do you think about the the winning motion, like the winning motion to to win the deal that you want to win, and you know what are you using, and how are you going about doing it? Look, TCP, TCP was great and and had a great experience there. 
there was always pressure to put capital deployed, right? That was the goal, right? We were always looking at the next, and that's and that's every middle market fund, capital deployment, raise the AUM, do good deals, right? So there's there's always a pressure of capital deployment, make, make, maintaining IRRs and OX for investors, and, it, and, and it's very standard in that fund. I'll be honest, at CRP, our first year, just getting a deal done. <laughs> like, let's just get a deal done. However, however we can get a deal done, let's get on the map. Right, because it is much harder to talk to investment bankers or brokers or executives where I can leverage my prior deals from TCP, but like, oh, you, you don't have a fund, you get this website, like you got two people on it. So look, you're just trying to get a deal done. Like, and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. Like, you're trying to get a deal done any way you can. Like, that's what I tell people. Like, right, <laughs> like, let's just be honest with ourselves. Fast forward, you know, two and a half years, we can be a little more strategic. What's interesting is five of our six companies are now all working with each other. And we sort of built a flywheel effect. As an example, our IT services business is now using our, our fiber business as a vendor. Our other Chrome business is using our, our ERP consulting as a, as a consulting. So we're actually working on creating some marketing of like how five of our six companies are actually all working with each other. And it's created a flywheel effect. So what we're excited about is you call any one of our CEOs. They can say, hey, we're working with three other CEOs in this year portfolio. And that's how we think we can create more value is, hey, come be part of our flywheel effect because we're building a portfolio of companies. But to your point, the original, the beginning, and, I, and we didn't, I didn't think of that much at the, at the TCP level. I just didn't think of it. It's, it's more coming, you know, now at CRP. But again, first deal, find a deal that we can lock, we can lock up that we think is interesting. We're not going to lose our face on, make, you know, and, and close it and, and get on the map. Right. And, that, and the first deal is always the hardest. Yeah. And from the seller's perspective, like how much scrutiny do you feel like you're getting from the seller versus from the broker or the advisor? Like where does the scrutiny come from when you're a first time independent sponsor about whether or not you can get a deal done? Do you feel like it, a lot of that scrutiny happens through the, you know, the intermediary layer on the sell side? Or, or is that something that the business owner you find to be sort of most, most anxious about? It's more the investment banker, right? Because a lot of sellers when we're playing, when, when you're looking at, Three, four, five, and even right. Typically, we're chasing between three and ten, right? That's in our range. You know, our first deal was break even, but it's turned around. You know, but we had a growth plan. A lot of those owners don't know any better because they haven't been fully educated, and, and they're not hiring typically. Hires Williams or Steve, or, right? They're hiring a broker who do a great jobs. So don't get me wrong, but they don't have the experience of Harris Williams data. Here's the fund. Here's TRP. Here's how many funds they've raised. Here's how many deals they've bid on. Here's their IOI to LI conversion rate. All these metrics that Harris Williams has in every single buyer they run into, right? So they don't have that insight. At least most of them don't. It's really the broker or the bankers that we're talking to. And look, they're looking to get what they want is they want to put a buyer in front of their client that is actually going to deliver in what they said in the LOI and then close. Their biggest thing is can you close a deal, right? Can you raise the funds? So we're very transparent with, of the six deals we've done, five of them have been done through a a relationship that CRP already had with the advisor. And two went back 15 years. And one of them said, look, I will tell you if I can't raise the capital. He's like, no, Nate, I trust you. And we were able to leverage that 15-year relationship to get the deal done and get it locked up. And we raised the capital. There's a fine line of like, fake it till you make it kind of thing. Like, do you really have the capital? Do you not? We tried to tee up interest in advance of setting the LOI to some degree. Problem with that is a lot of capital providers, well, a lot of them will say, hey, show me the deal as early as possible. We do that. Most of them don't want to really do any real work until you've had it on your LOI, yeah. 
right? It's like a, it's, and I don't blame them. Like they're trying to figure out where to spend their time, right? So we've been able to be, be, we've been able to set up a situation where we're, we're able to get support letters from our capital providers that we can attach to an IOI to an LOI. And then as soon as we get the LOI signed, you know, we may have had a couple of conversations, but the clock starts ticking that we're running hard to get the capital sources. And I will tell the investment banker, you know, two weeks in here where we're at. Like I'll be, I'll be very transparent because the last thing I want him to feel is we can't deliver because it doesn't make him look good with his client. And if you call any of the advisors that we've worked across the table from, there's six or seven of them now, they've all, they'll all give us a pretty good reference, a glowing reference because we delivered what we said we did. We were honest with what we did. I think that's pretty important. The support letters, just generally speaking here, it sounds like, you know, that's something that could be replicated by by other independent sponsors as well. So like what, what tends to go into the support letter from your perspective? Is There's all flavors. We have one from one family office. It's been in every one of our deals. It says, look, you know, we are interested in supporting CRP, like their investments. We've been in every deal. They won't. Sometimes they'll do a capital range. Sometimes they won't. They'll say, here's, here's our website. And we can write meaningful check sizes and support, right? It's it's not committed, just so we're clear. It's just a support letter, right? And at that point, they don't even know what the deal is yet. But they've allowed us to kind of use that as a as a, a soft backstop to say to people, hey, these guys have... And we didn't have that in our first deal. We didn't get to tell our second deal. But that gives, you know, it gives people comfort that, hey, you've done a deal before, you've raised capital before. And that's something I, I would encourage people to do if you can get that kind of support from your investor base. Is that something that you typically get on a deal specific basis or is that are you able to get a support letter from someone on sort of like a, you know, blanket. like a blanket basis? Yeah, yeah. So we have one on a blanket basis because he's done every deal. He's, that person is at family, done every deal or every deal with us. Others we typically do in a deal by deal. We'll go talk to some of the SPIC funds, with their, their capital providers and say, hey, we're looking at the deal. Here's the preview. Here's our materials. And most often or not, you can easily, you should be able to get support letters from groups. There's no binding, there's nothing binding in there. And so, but at least it helps the seller and the advisors, right? Hey, these guys are real. They've done their homework. They're talking to capital. It gives them more comfort. Right. And so on, in the situation where the support letters are, are deal specific, where are you in the deal process when you make the support letters available to the sell side? Are you pre-IOI or post-LOI or wh- where are you in the funnel? So the blanket one is typically the blanket one is pre is IOI. The LOI we typically have a couple of a couple of support letters and nothing's committed because they all have outs, usually diligence outs. And then in several of our deals, we provided meaningful like updates where we'll put a side by side, particularly on the debt side. We'll share the here the terms of the three different lenders that we're talking to. We typically don't share as much on the equity side. Because, you know, we're trying to find a balance of, you know, saying we've got the capital, but we're still kind of populating all the capital together, right? So it's a balance in the equity side, but we're probably more transparent on the, on, the, on the debt side. Do you spend more time on the equity side or on the debt side getting deals done? It's a great question. 18 months ago, it was probably more on the equity side. Recently, it's been more on the debt. Debt has been more, senior debt has been very challenging the last three months, six months. No wonder why that is. Yeah, yeah. If you actually do the math, senior debt is actually more expensive than sub-debt when you include the rate plus amortization plus the ECF sweep, right? So if you think about the actual cash cost to service the debt, senior debt can actually be more expensive than the sub-debt. And often sub-debts, the sub-debt or the mezzanine debt, they'll write meaningful equity. So our last transaction, we just we were struggling with some of the senior debt, you know, not because of the business, just because of the market environment. 
we ended up doing the transaction with all sub-debt and equity. And we will look to refinance or put in senior debt 12 months down the road, hopefully. In certain parts of like sort of small business M&A, lower middle market M&A, there's a lot of use of seller financing. How do, how do you think about seller financing as part of... It's a great question. So, and my view has changed on this and I'm going to put seller financing and earnouts together okay. just because I think it's important. I've become a much bigger believer of seller financing if we need to bridge the valuation gap and less so of earnouts. Earnouts, you end up in... I have a deal from my old firm. It's been 10 years. You're still working on the earnout, right? Earnouts can be difficult. You know, when you buy a company... Right, and then there's a, there's a 12-month earnout. Who really controls the company if you're taking a control stake, or is it is it the new buyer, is it, is it the seller, right? And you know, I've had a lot of earnouts continue to be just they're just they're just difficult to measure and to manage. Unless you know, so we will do an earnout if it's very short-term in nature, a couple of months. But beyond that, we won't we won't do earnouts because it's too hard. We'll look to seller financing to bridge valuation gaps if we need to, or if there's a shortness or if there's a difficulty in obtaining financing. And the last thing that we'll we'll explore, we'll try to try to avoid this, we'll maybe create a larger incentive pool, right? You know, instead of a 10% incentive pool for men, maybe it's 20% or something, and we'll share it 5% with the owner if we make certain returns. So at least that way, you know, he feels like he's getting something, but we feel like we're only giving it up if we create a fair amount of value. Right. What he doesn't like is the time duration of it. But if he's going to be our partner, and some of our deals we have partners, some of them, some of them are 100% buyouts. You know, we try to we, we want to have alignment of interest, and long term earnouts don't have Christmas alignment. So we try to avoid those as much as possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think the further out you go from the transaction, the more that can complicate complicates it. Yeah, the fairness and achievability of the of and the alignment of the earnout. Yeah. One thing I want to talk about, go back to the capital sources that you brought up is the other thing that we've learned is if you're talking to a capital source, whether it's a family office or an SBSE fund, I think it's also important for an independent sponsor or a guy trying to deal is have some visibility into the decision-making process of the capital source and ideally get to a point where you're talking to somebody who's actually on the investment committee. And it's not always easy, right? You're, you're dealing with lots of people some of these SBIC firms or VC firms. You know, we've been in situations where we were thought we had a deal, had good terms, dealing with, again, no offense to the VP or principal, like they're doing what they should be doing. You know, we feel more, you know, we have, we have a, call it, tier list of 10 or 12 SBIC firms that we'd like to work with because we have good relationships now with somebody on the committee, either the founder or somebody on the committee. And so when, we, when I call them, they'll give me a quick screen so, you know, we're, into, we're not interested. I don't mind. I love talking to all the BD people and the VPs and principals. You know, but I think it's important to make sure that, hey, if they're giving you a term sheet or they want to support your transaction, really push them. Don't be afraid to push them hard. Or like, hey, how vetted is this internally? And someone on your committee, like, is there a partner that's going to be, like I can tell you, that, that's going to speak up for this deal? Or is it really run, be, being run, run by, you know, a more junior person? And, look, and it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a tough balance because when I was a junior person at TCP, I wanted to run a deal by myself, but I also have to balance, you know, I'm dealing with a banker or an older owner and they want to know that the senior person's involved and they signed off. So it's something to think about as you're thinking about who you're working with and what capital sources you choose from. Yeah, it's a lot like a long-term, long-sale cycle enterprise sale, right? Yeah. If you know, you're talking to the um, person who's going to be the heaviest user of the software, they may not be the person who actually controls the budget. And you know, you need to talk to the 
chief information officer, even though the chief information officer is never going to use the software, that's the person who's going to make the decision. So the, you know, in a lot of ways, it seems like the capital raising process for independent sponsors is like not that different from big, long sales cycle sort of enterprise, enterprise sales. Yeah in terms of navigating power and navigating who has real decision rights and absolutely and, and don't be afraid to like you know we had one family office one family office that we work with now that's in two of our deals they said no to our first seven i think that we showed them we didn't, we didn't close some of those but they kept you know they said no a lot i think a lot of them for a lot of these guys it's just they want to see the active thought process or you show them consistent investment materials their consistent theme you know, there were there there are points where like, oh, these guys will never say yes. But they said yes two years in. Like we but but we you know, we kept we were persistent, we visited them once, you know, you know, so don't be you know, it's a long these are long term points. These are these can be long sales cycles, more than two, three years, some of them. Sometimes sometimes it could be a month, right? Depending if you catch them and they have capital to deploy and it's it fits the thesis they're looking for. But no, you know, there's there's one group that we've been talking to, I've been talking to probably for like seven, eight years. You know, they submitted two term sheets and two deals. We ended up not using them, but they keep calling us up saying, we want to do a deal with you guys. They didn't like the first six we saw them. They liked the last two, but we couldn't have room. So it's just, it's your point. It's their long sales cycles. But don't be afraid to go back to guys and say, no, it just takes time. Do you spend any time developing these relationships outside the context of a live deal or? Yes. You do. Okay. Definitely. You know, I try to, with our group, I always check, try to check with them once a quarter. Well, I'm talking to them anyway already to some of them because of they're either in, they're now in an investment with us. So we have monthly updates, but some that we haven't taken count before. Yeah, I'll, I'll ping them once a quarter just to be helpful. Right? Hey, what are you seeing? What am I seeing? Right. You know, there's a there's a group that we're that we that I talk to all the time. So it's this SBIC fund. You know, the, the founder is a very good friend of mine. We'll we'll trade notes like, hey, this, you know, you know, is this fair? Is this market? And I'll tell me yeah, that is fair. That is market. Or, you know, I'm looking at this thesis. What do you think? So there's there's a handful of groups that we will continue to just have discussions, which we, we try to be helpful everywhere we can be. And I've, I'm also, like, I'll refer a lot of other independent sponsor deals to a number of the SBIC firms that I, that I haven't even done a deal with yet, right? But I'll, because they want deal flow, I'll, I'll like, here are, four, here are four deals that I'm aware of raising capital. So 100%, yes. And so when you're referring them in those deals, those are deals that you have decided to pass on, but that you think are interesting for them for some reason or another? Oh, no, 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 no. These are deals where another independent sponsor has come to me and said, hey, I'm, I'm, raising, I'm raising capital for a deal. Either I'm meeting my best personally if they're doing a small check, which I, I don't have that right now, but, or hey, who can I, who can I talk to? I'll probably get one every couple of weeks, right? Just because you know, now, just because I've been, I've been, you know, people have known what we do and I'm happy to help people out. Here, here are five. I'll, I'll quickly look at the deal and I'll say, you know, here are five firms that I think could be interesting to talk to. And, and I'm, I'm happy to share. I'm happy to share some many of the SPIC firms that we work with because they're always always looking for deal flow and they're appreciative of when we refer them things. It'd be really interesting to maybe just spend a few minutes before we wrap, just hearing a little bit about how you kind of homed in on the investment sort of strike zone and the thesis that that you feel most conviction with that you're most excited about where you have like the greatest level of comfort and conviction it sounds like you iteratively developed your way there to a certain extent and some of it is accidental and some of it is intentional but it'd be interesting to just hear how you feel like the thesis has increasingly come into focus because i do think that generally speaking having 
a focus is helpful, whether you're committed capital or whether you're deal by deal, just being known for something is, is, is I think, helpful in terms of being able to win deals. And I think there's a general pressure and trend towards specialization on the buy side. And, and, but I think how people get there and how people figure out what is the, you know, what is the specialization? How should I begin to think about building a thesis? I haven't done a deal yet. You know, how, how should I be thinking about this? I think it's probably a question that a lot of sponsors or search funds or, you know, even family offices try and, you know, try to figure out like, what do I want to believe in? What do I want to really home in on? And how do you go about doing that? Yeah. Great question. So to pull it further back, started my career as a TMT telecom media consultant and investment banker. Went to TCP, General's firm, but I spent most of my time in sort of three subsectors, IT services, franchise, and the last one was timeshare. I probably know more about timeshare than I ever want to admit to anybody, but I spent a lot of time in- Like real estate timeshare? Like, like, like vacation timeshare. Okay. Yes. Like a lot of time in timeshare. So when I left, when I left TCP and did my own thing, you know, our first deal was a company that provided technology, hardware, and software for drones in the Pacific Northwest. It was a carve-out in bankruptcy. So we had drones, carve out, bankruptcy, Pacific Northwest. So when we first started CRP, we're like, you know what? Let's start with Pacific Northwest with our thesis. And there's a there's a bunch of independent sponsors up here who I, who I have a lot of respect for. They're very focused on doing deals only in the Pacific Northwest. So we did that. We sort of look at, I think we talked about bankruptcy deals in the past, too complicated. We dabbled in and out of carve outs. We've got two carve outs. And then the last piece was sort of the hardware, software, IT services. We, did, we then did our second deal. So we, we looked at all four channels. So all four criteria. Like again, we were trying to figure it out. We then did our second deal about a year and a half later in IT services. In IT services. Okay, that's interesting. And then that deal led us to three more deals across the country in IT services. And so what we so now we've got this sort of ecosystem of of which one of them was also a carve out. So now we're really focused on this fixed and levels of technology. We call it unsexy tech. You know, if it distributes hardware, provides software support, provides IT services, helps you implement software, right? You know, that's where we spend most of our time, but it took us a while to get there. I mean, I probably spent six months talking to a bunch of bankruptcy guys and receivership guys. Probably not a good use of time back in early 2020. And the reason being is what we, what we didn't we, we didn't appreciate was because of all the PPP loans and all the money from the government, it was the worst of the worst that were going through bankruptcy. Right? I mean, even, these were the companies that could not even survive off the, after the PPP loan. But we spent a lot of time there, right, built a, built a network and you know, we had to pivot. So we've pivoted a couple times, to be honest, the last, you know, you know, between 2020 and 2021. 2022 is where I think we got our solid ground footing. And now that we're sort of six companies in, I think we're, I think we know what we're looking for and we're, and we, we're pretty quick about it. Have you developed incremental conviction within the IT services category at this point? Yeah, for sure. So I'll give you an example. Like we bought one company that provides IT support services for K through 12. It's about a year ago. And we had a good thesis, like we'd sell more hardware and more IT support. And we had our, you know, in the post-closing, three of our customers had cyber attacks or ransomware. So now we're building a cybersecurity practice. And what we've evolved to is let's not just provide the, the IT support and hardware. We're not going to provide like cybersecurity services. Like we got to go help these companies, these school districts, you know, with penetration testing and actively monitor their networks for cybersecurity hacks. And I guess where I'm, where I'm going with this is, you have your under, everyone has their underwrite case and all the investors want to see their, see your five-year plan, your five-year model. 90% of them are wrong anyway. Like the world's going to change and every, the world changes every two years on us, whether it's COVID, Ukraine, supply chain, something is always going wrong or changing. 
So, you know, we're continuously looking at our businesses where we've got good people that can help adapt to those changing environments. And that's something we learned when we brought one of the Amazon executives in. You know, they, they look at doing sort of two-year forecasts and sort of 10-year outlooks. You know, they're like, why build a five-year model when you know the input is probably going to change in year three because the market's going to change in some direction. So we're so that's how we think about making investments now. Like, look, we have a good solid base. We know something's going to change in it during our holding period, but let's make sure we have the right people to address that, whether it's on the customer side or the, or the supply side. I hope that answers your question, Peter. Yeah. The deeper dive into cyber as a function of the initial conviction, initial theme, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And obviously just creates another source of like value creation within IT services to, to add the cyber layer on top of the whatever the, the, the core service is. Maybe we'll just close by just, I'd love to hear, I've met many independent sponsors who tend to keep a really lean team in terms of like, it's really maybe only just them and maybe a little bit of admin support. You've developed a little bit of a real team at, at, at CRP at this point. And before we hopped on, you mentioned that you might even be bringing on somebody into a full-time business development capacity. Just, what are your thoughts on talent and, and team building? And how do you think about the kind of talent that you want to bring to uh, to CRP? And is that different than the way you might've thought about talent at TZP? Or just how do you think about talent for, for CRP and what's driving it? Sure, look, we're, we're being, you know, we have, I think we've got eight people now full-time at CRP, you know, two partners or seven, two partners, principal, full-time BD person, two associates, and sort of a an office and admin person, right? So what we have, and look, but we've been efficient. Everyone, if you look at everyone on our team, besides me and the principal, no one comes from private equity. Right? My partner is a software developer. He was an entrepreneur. Our BD person came from who's a long-term BD guy selling software, software and and EV stations. Our two associates are actually in India. Right, you know, my partner has built a lot of, you know, my partner has built a lot of investments in India, so we're leveraging that. So our view is we want to be able to support our portfolio companies. So like our CEOs can email our associates directly for, hey, I'm looking at a company or an ad on. Do you have any? Can you pull some research on this? I'll be CC'd on it. So you know, our goal is we want to create a more bandwidth for us, for me and my partner, to point to execute more deals, you know, be more strategic, and then we try to do a lot of the. The day-to-day heavy lifting, you know, I'll still do a fair amount of it myself, but I leveraged our, our, our two associates and our principal, like, will help a ton. So I think we've got a good model. You know, they all know the risks that we're all, you know, they all know the risks of being in an entrepreneurial kind of chaotic environment that a committed fund. But we, we have enough portfolio fees coming in now to at least manage our bases. And look, if we have a great year, we, we share. If we don't have a great year, we all suffer. That's the, the pros and cons of joining us. But yeah, so I don't I'm not sure we're building it right, but that's just the path that we're that we're taking. When you say the heavy lifting that you know they're they're doing, and obviously you're still doing plenty of that yourself, but were you referring to heavy lifting with portfolio companies or heavy lifting at the top of the funnel for for new deals? I just want to make sure I understood. The top of the funnel for new deals was part of it, as well as then helping us put together the diligence material that we're going out to raise capital. Right? Hey, researching the industry, putting together the initial investor deck. We have templates now that, you know, when it was just me and my partner, I did most of it, you know, the first two years, but those are all template or got good templates now. I can give that to the associate and she can get 90% of it done or 85% of it done, you know, and then I can kind of review it and make changes or edits, you know, tracking all the M&A opportunities or the add-on opportunities for a portfolio company, helping us do the, if the CFO has, you know, if we don't have the, a, a true CFO yet, a portfolio company, making sure we have the right compliance certificate set up for the banks. Right. Our, our team in India, our associate can kind of draft 
that. I could look at it and then get it to the CFO or get it to the bank. So it's a combination of both the top of the funnel, really the diligence part, like the due diligence materials is where they spend a lot of the time. And then some portfolio work where it's really more dealing with the banks and the financial side, less so on the operational side. Nate, this has been like an awesome tell-all on the the entrepreneurial road of of building an independent sponsor investment firm from from scratch that's focused on lower middle market businesses. It's we've never done this. We haven't covered this before, so I'm really excited for everybody to be able to to listen in. I know there were a lot of other war stories along the way for you that we didn't cover today, and hopefully people reach out to you to hear more about those offline. If you're looking to get a hold of Nate, I just want to let Nate just sort of maybe close out by saying, you know, what what's the best way to get a hold of him and what what are the kinds of people that Nate's looking to hear from in addition. So look, we've had a lot of we've been fortunate, you know, we I think we we're we we're, we're doing some interesting things. We had a lot of help from people, you know, that were trailblazing before us. There's a couple of independent sponsors in Seattle that have been super helpful to me. So I want to be helpful to people if they're taking a plunge about doing this. It's not for the faint of heart. Do it with a partner. Be ready for twelve to eighteen months of, of ups and downs and you can you know just go to columbiariverpartners.com and my email's up there and you're welcome to reach out to me directly and i'm happy to be helpful it's great to have you on thank you very much Nate. thanks peter for having me and i appreciate what axial does and we have found it to be a great source of opportunities so thank you for hosting us happy to hear it thank you If you enjoyed this episode, check out Axial.com. There you'll find every episode of this podcast, as well as our recorded Axial member roundtables, some downloadable tools for dealmakers, Axial's quarterly league table rankings of top small business acquirers and investment banks, and lots of other useful content that we've created over the course of time. If you're interested in joining Axial as either an acquirer, an owner considering an exit, or as a sell-side M&A advisor, you can get started for free at Axial.com as well. Lastly, if you have ideas for podcast show guests, feel free to reach out to me directly at peter at axial.net. I promise I will respond. Thanks for listening.